This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Recently, Health Minister Dr. Zaliha Mustafa announced an initiative to provide free sanitary pads in the Ministry of Health to combat period poverty. She said that the initiative will launch in MOH itself, in which sanit- free sanitary pads will be placed in the washroom of the minister's office. The announcement drew mixed reactions from the public, with many calling it a step in the right direction, while others say the initiative should be targeted better. So is it a good initiative? Is it not? Perhaps a great initiative that in typical Harapan fashion wasn't communicated properly. So joining me on the show today to unpack this is Janelle Tan. She's the Information and Communications Officer at the All Women's Action Society, AWAM. Welcome to the show, Janelle. How are you? Hi, I'm fine, Darshan. Thanks for having me back again. Thanks for coming on the show. Before we talk about this initiative, Janelle, let's start with the issue itself, which is period poverty. What exactly is period poverty? So before I go to period poverty, I would like to introduce again, uh, me being academic as usual, uh, this terminology that's called menstrual hygiene management. So um, they're actually related to one another. So as per um, WHO, World Health Organization, and UNICEF back in 2012, they actually define menstrual hygiene management to consist of three aspects. The first one is use of clean materials for menstruation, and by that, you know, pads, tampons, etc., etc. Um, and they also emphasize that as you use these clean materials, you should have this space where you can be cha- where you can change them in private for as often as necessary. That's the first one. The second one is um, access to sanitation um, facilities and uh, disposal facilities. By that, we also include um, access to clean water um, and even other basic necessities that you and I will take for granted. For example, soap or tissue. So this is actually the second aspect. Right. The third one is actually access to basic information about menstruation. And um, and that's very crucial because without that, without the relevant period um, awareness and knowledge, um, women and girls will not be able to manage um, their periods with dignity um, and also equally importantly, without discomfort and without fear. Um, and this third aspect also encompasses stigma, basically. And if I were to link all this back to period poverty, Period poverty, I can say it as, um, basically involves a lack of either or a combination of those three conditions. Right. Um, how serious is this issue of period poverty across the globe and also in Malaysia? Um, well, to be honest, internationally speaking, right, I mm-hmm. would say that the bulk of the statistics actually come from other continents. Um, right. By that, off the top of my head would be Africa and uh, to a great extent, South Asia. And I was actually quite surprised to even come across um, quite concerning statistics from even parts of Europe. So, for example, right, in the UK, according to Action 8, over 50% of girls in the UK actually said that they couldn't afford menstrual products at some point. 50%? Five zero, correct. Wow. Yeah, I so didn't expect that. And then um, if I were to jump, like, for example, um, participation in social activities, if I were to go back to the UK again, right, more than 137,700 girls in the UK missed school in a year because they couldn't afford sanitary products. And you would expect that countries like this wouldn't even, you know, like be affected by this issue. We even, I even came across a statistic from New Zealand where um, more than 90,000 school-aged girls actually stay home from school because, again, they couldn't afford menstrual products. And this is just Europe. So I haven't even gone to, you know, South America, um, how do I say um the Arab world right. um, and even South Asia, and that's just globally. Like, 
Um, just a fun fact though, actually, I think back in 2020, I don't remember the, the details, but in 2020, I think internationally, um, there was some form of um, systematic effort to uh, understand certain parts of period poverty in a greater level. And I think it involved collection of data from around 40 countries globally. And that is the first of its kind, and it's very recent. So as you can see, as much as, you know, like there is, you know, increasing awareness about period poverty and et cetera, and menstrual hygiene even, um, even international efforts to, to really systematically collect data and to further understand this landscape is very recent. So if I were to apply all this to Malaysia, right, I mean, in Malaysia, um, you and I would probably have seen, you know, articles, news articles, especially during the pandemic, for me, especially, right. you know, since I came into Awam in 2021, like the pandemic-related articles would be a lot more accessible to me. Mm -hmm. So I came across my fair share of um, uh, news articles covering um, B40 women from even the urban areas, um, basically saying things like they couldn't afford pets. Previously, they were somehow, they managed to make ends meet, but because of financial insecurity and unemployment, they were not able to afford pets. And so they either had to share, basically they had to share their supplies with their neighbors, for example. Another example literally involved resorting to rags, um, newspaper sheets, um, cloths where they just wash and just wash repeatedly to reuse it. Um, we see that even during the pandemic lock. And these are just, you know, isolated incidents. Um, of course, if you're relating to data, there is some, but again, it's not systematic. Um, in terms of data last year that I think is very significant, it would be um, the Cortex Period Stigma Study, right. uh, Period Poverty and Stigma Study. Um, and they actually conducted it among 746 girls slash young women aged 10 to 24 in Malaysia, I will state a couple of statistics that's actually quite, you know, like concerning. Mm -hmm. Like out of these 746 respondents, right, more than one in two reported wanting to miss school when on their periods. And a number of them reported skipping on average one to three days of school monthly when menstruating. One to three days monthly is actually quite scary because if you add out across a year, it's almost up to a month and you can imagine the impact um on, you know, like being able to catch up with schoolwork and all. And that may, again, lead to suboptimal outcomes such as dropouts of school, right? Right. Um, Stigma-related stats, that's actually very important. 54% feel uncomfortable about themselves when on periods. 32% um, are only comfortable discussing periods openly, including with those, um, you know, like men and boys. Another one is... 30% dislike menstruating, although they understand that it is a normal bodily function. So you can see just how deeply entrenched this period stigma and discomfort of women and girls towards even your normal bodies, even when they understand that period is actually a normal biological function. So yeah, this will pretty much set the tone for a lot of work that needs to be done. Ultimately, what I'm getting at is, is if you want to break it down to its fundamentals, period poverty is that people are in such impoverished conditions that they do not even have the means to get um, basic menstrual hygiene products such as period pads, right? And that is very, very alarming indeed because many people in this circle, for example, they may not have friends or family members that are in that situation. And, and so it's something that, you know, maybe something they never even thought of before. Janelle, you, you touched on this a little bit, but can you dive into a a little bit more deeper, what is the impact of period poverty? The first one is actually um, health luck. So 
depending on whether um, whether you know whether it's because you don't have access to sanitary products and so you're not able to change, for example, on a frequent basis in line with your um, menstrual cycle um, and and your blood flow, it's either uh, either due to that or you know due to inadequate understanding of how to manage your menstruation, it can actually lead to real health consequences. By that I mean things like um, urinary tract infection. Um, I mean, this is a medical condition that probably you and I know, like, and probably relate a lot more to, you know, general health. But I guess a lot of people may not immediately think of this as a possible consequence of um, inability to, you know, like, fully and effectively manage your menstruation. And I think urinary tract infection, one of the symptoms, for example, is, you know, you 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 experience a burning sensation when you're urinating or basically pain up. Another one that is very common, I would say is very unique to women, is actually bacterial vaginosis. Basically, um, that can come about, um, that basically that comes up because there is an, a, there's a over production or overgrowth of bacteria on the surface of the vagina that can lead to discharge and other um, negative symptoms. But I will bring up quite one that is quite life-threatening. It it may not happen often, but um, I guess in other continents where, you know, there there are very, very limited conditions where you can manage your menstruation effectively, it may be able to lead to that. And that's actually the toxic shock syndrome or TSS in short. And it's triggered by certain bacteria. I won't go into the terminology because it's just too long. (laughs) But basically, um, toxins produced by these bacteria, they can bring about hypotension, i.e. a drop in blood pressure. Um, And also, if worst case scenario is organ failure, if you don't get to it quickly. Um, But generally, in the medical um, landscape, toxic shock syndrome, you can observe it in kids, um, you know, for whatever reason. And worst case scenario can be death if you don't manage, if you don't get to it in time. Um, but toxic shock syndrome is pretty much, at least from what I know, the one of the most life-threatening consequences. Um, and um, of course, you can imagine the costs involved if you, you know, like if you experience these um, health consequences. Right. And especially in marginalized communities when, they already have the bulk of their expenditures spent on basic necessities like, you know, food, housing, rent, um, you know, gas for transport, uh, communications, you know, through phones, um, and especially certain food groups to at least ensure that they get some nutrition for their families. If you take that all into consideration, um, these medical trips are actually incurring additional costs that they may not be able to afford. So, I guess in this case, you know, like management of menstruation would be very critical. Another area would probably be educational or professional. Luck. I would right. just briefly touch on it. Um, so um, you see it in other continents and you also see it through the statistics that I've also brought up in Malaysia here, whereby if you can't even, for example, like if you have a lack of access to sanitary products, you just feel concerned about going to school because, I mean, the experience of just not having, yeah, it's just, it, might, it will be unbearable. Right. Um, and they may choose to skip school instead. And over a long-term basis, it can basically um, lead to education gaps. In the workplace, um, I would probably bring up um, where period symptoms affect productivity at work. So one of the common symptoms that a lot of women would know about is um, in medical terminology is dysmenorrhea or in layman terms is menstrual cramps. So every woman or every girl's menstruation experience is going to be different. For me, for example, like 
I have certain months where I don't have any cramps at all. Uh-huh. I have some months where the cramps may come as early as one to two weeks, but they're bearable. But I have some months where the cramps come smack bang on the first day of the, you know, like first day of the menstruation period. And um, they're actually quite overbearing. So, but then for some women, um, the dysmenorrhea that they're experiencing can be on a chronic basis and it can be so painful to the extent that they just can't concentrate at work or they really, really have to take leave. So um, that they might hesitate to take leave because that might affect, for example, how their employers and how the supervisors perceive about them. Or they may not have enough leaves to take in the first place. And if they do that, they might compromise their income, for example. So um, in that sense, you can see how menstruation, uh, at least, you know, when you don't have a period-friendly environment, it can directly impact um, access to equal employment opportunities um, for women. So that's the second one. The third area, this is a personal preoccupation of mine because I like to look at structures, right? Right. Because you're nine old. Um, So, I mean, if you look at the um, connotation of stigma, right? I mean, across the eons of time, um, like, what does menstruation mean for women? Um, I think the first words probably, you know, like cult- from cultural um, and religious origins would be impure, unclean, um, a blemish on, you know, for example, my femininity. Because, you know, like women, I guess, due to sexualization and all the other dynamics, um, they are pretty much upheld to manage themselves to police their own behaviors uh to to manage their own appearances in a certain way to attract the male gaze right and um when you basically when you have stains on your underwear for example um or if you undertake certain activities that that sort of like expose this um it pretty much contradicts this whole this whole expectation, social social right. expectation of how women should go on about, um, you know, like carrying on with their lives and how they should, you know, have a certain image, like their images in front of, you know, other people. And so um, this stigma, at least, you know, from what I understand is one, um, in, in the complex interplay of everything, um, basically it makes women a lot more self-conscious. Uh, it puts women and girls in a state of pressure, stress to a certain extent um, to, to, to manage themselves during menstruation because they just don't want to, you know, like whether they don't want to look, they don't want to, they don't want to, you know, like look impure and basically perpetuate these cultural taboos. Um, on the other hand, if you look at stigma, if I were to take a big step back and if I were to just look generally at, um, you know, like um, stigma against marginalized groups in general, what does that indicate? In, in a way, it can be associated with this state of inferiority. And if you take into account the historical discrimination against women and girls, right? Stigma, to a certain extent, even for menstruation, when it's such a normally normal bodily function, um, to in an indirect manner, it actually perpetuates this superiority, inferiority right. dynamic. Right. But yeah, so, uh, but this is very you know, very cultural. Uh. Um, so so these are what I can, you know, like provide when it comes to the impact uh, or, or at least impact of period poverty. Absolutely. And I think these are things that people perhaps don't often think about, right? Because period poverty is more than just, um, you know, a minor inconvenience to women. It is not just the the health, um, the detriment to, to their health, which is already terrible enough, but there's a vicious snowball effect that could ultimately, you know, lead to a lack of uh, loss of education and loss of employment and fundamentally 
really that brings about, you know, the, the, inequal- the inequalities and the inequities that we have, um, which then further entrenches, uh, you know, patriarchy and, and all of that. So it is a huge widespread um, um, issue, uh, you know, uh, uh, an issue with, with wide ranging effects. Paint a picture for us, Janelle. Um, say there is a, a 13 year old um, B40 orang asli or urban poor girl. What happens in her life if her family cannot afford period pads? Oh my, that that's actually uh, uh, involves a lot of factors, mm-hmm. So on one hand, if I were to draw go back to um, you know the effects that I've talked about, um, health issues, um, unex uh, basically, um, incurred additional incurred costs, you know, for example, due to trips to the clinic and etc. Um, let's not, if I were to honestly go back to the B40 expenditure, right? I mean, I've managed to pull this off um, one of three Malaysia Today's articles recently, actually. So, um, like, if you add up housing, water, electricity, gas, fuels, um, food eaten away from home, because let's not forget, right? Um, most important, you will most likely expect at least both one or both parents to go out and work. And when they go out and work, they can't cook at home. Mm-hmm. So they have no choice but to incur costs for, you know, like takeaways, transport, um, they've actually mentioned fish and seafood items because poultry prices have gone up and so they would have to resort to alternative sources of protein and fish and seafood would be an alternative. Um, carbohydrates, of course, you know, rice, bread and stuff uh, and communications. And when you add all these up, right, I think it takes up to 70, no, 70, 80% of the entire right. expenditure, household, household expenditure. So we haven't even taken into consideration, I haven't even included, like, let's say if they have house or car loans, I right. included, um, let's say if the parents get sick, uh, what about emergency funds? So you can see, right, menstruation products is literally non-existent in this entire priority list and everything else is just equally important, right? Um, and if you look at the cost of sanitary napkins, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very privileged, I have to say that, because I can afford these things. Like um, one packet of pets, and I'm not, I don't even, I, I can't even tell you like, because there are different types mm-hmm. and different types, different lengths have different prices. So for example, a 29 centimeter versus a 35 centimeter century napkin, of course, 35 centimeter one is going to be a little bit more expensive, right. right? But an average price they can expect to get off a convenience store or a hypermarket is probably like 10 to 17 ringgit per pack. And one pack can expect 40 to 15. That's the economic one. And then, um, and imagine like a woman uses how many per month, like, and that's just one, one woman would, you can expect her to use what, 20, 25, and I'm talking about an right. average menstrual, I'm not yeah. even talking about the heavy ones. Um, and in a B40 household, let's say if you have a mother, um, at least one daughter, you have two women, uh, two, one woman, one girl, for example, um, and if there's more than, but on average, you can expect a household's usage of sanitary pads per month to be, 40, 40 to 60 mm-hmm. and that's accounting for the various menstrual flow and that's just two people costs total costs 51 ring like 50 to 55 ringgit roughly um so that's that may not be something that a b40 family would be able to consider so that's why the free century product um, initiatives be very useful in that sense and this is just the b40 i haven't even gone to the other marginalized groups yet
So we have a lot to lot more to discuss, especially with regard to the initiative. But let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at the All Women Action Society, AWAM. After the break, I ask her about the new initiative by Malaysia's first woman health minister. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at AWAM, which is the All Women Action Society. And we're talking about a new initiative by the Minister of Health. Um, so the Health Minister, Dr. Zaliha Mustafa, announced an initiative to provide free sanitary pads in the Ministry of Health to combat period poverty. So she said that the initiative will launch in MOH itself, in which free sanitary pads will be placed in the washroom of the minister's office. Janelle, what are your thoughts on this initiative? I actually think it's a good one, um, mm -hmm. especially when, you know, like we consider the fact that the health minister just came into office how long ago? Less than, a, wait, was it less than two weeks Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, for her to even already start something like this, for me, it's a very big positive step um, towards reinforcing the government's commitment to gender mainstreaming efforts because, um, at least in the women's rights landscape, you know, when when we, especially when other groups, um, including Awam, actually advocate for, um, you know, things like gender responsive budgeting, it's actually a mindset. Um, it's not just about implementing um, initiatives on a selective basis. It's about ensuring, it's about ensuring that as many stakeholders, as many spaces as possible, um, actually have this. Um, lens, mindset, understanding of, you know, where women's needs are, um, empathize with them, and from there, develop responsive um, initiatives, you know, to address these gaps. Um, and that's how you go on about bringing substantive equality for women and girls. Um, and um, we have to remember that the individuals who will be running these initiatives in the future are actually the civil servants. And um, I think something as simple as putting free sanitary pads in those toilets. Yes, there may not have been a gap in access to sanitary pads, but by putting those sanitary pads in those bathrooms, it can go a certain way in normalizing periods in, in terms of how we perceive it. Um, because, you know, all of us, like we come from a culture and various religions that stigmatize periods. And so um, normalizing periods is a crucial step in basically breaking the period stigma. Um, and I, I have much hopes uh, in terms of, you know, like, because the health minister also tried to, you know, um, advocate that other government ministries bring this up as well. So I really hope that other government ministries will also take this up very swiftly. And I am also hopeful that what the health ministry is doing will also be an example or an exemplary one for um, other workplaces in the private sector. Because let's not forget, right? Period poverty, yes, the access to sanitary pads is one thing. Um, access to sanitation facilities is another one. And for this one, we can especially see this, um, for example, among the Orang Asli and the um, East Malaysian indigenous communities. But the other aspect, let's not forget, is actually the period stigma. Right. Um, yeah, and it's about getting not just women and girls, uh, but also men and boys on board to actually understand the impact of menstruation and um, basically break, go past those stereotypes and myths that make women and girls feel shameful and not able to be un uh, not able to be comfortable bringing up periods. So um, I think that the initiative is um, a good step forward in addressing especially the period stigma. And I hope that this will be the beginning um, of um, 
a gender lens by the government um, to develop responsive um, initiatives for the various targeted communities. I think it's pretty groundbreaking that a, for the first time ever, we have a health minister who just comes out and, and comes out and, and makes this a you know a priority right on her agenda, and and that is something that is very very important. And she wasn't very you know um, coy about it, very shy about it in that sense, which I think makes a big difference to especially to what you the point you brought up about you know the, the period stigma. But Janelle, how would you respond to the argument that why? Why is this, you know, starting in the Minister of Health? Uh, why not, you know, in, in public spaces, especially in poorer neighbourhoods and, and districts? How would you respond to that argument? First of all, right, the only initiative that I'm aware of at the federal level is actually from Budget 2022, if you remember, where the previous finance minister actually um, announced that 100,000 B40 adolescent girls would receive um, free free hygiene kits, right? That was about it. That's all I I understood. That's all I knew like, in terms of something that was more systematic. But even then, um, I've also actually commented about this where um, we didn't have data as to how the government went on about selecting and determining that these beneficiaries were the needy ones. So going back to what I've mentioned much earlier in that Malaysia does not have systematic data on all indicators of period poverty. We may have had independent research studies and surveys, for example, by Cortex, um, that looked into a various various number of things like um, period knowledge, period awareness, help-seeking behaviours, but we don't really have systematic data, especially on the free, on, on the lack of access um, to sanitary pads and sanitation facilities. So when we don't have data, how do you go on about ensuring that the initiatives or interventions are actually really responsive to um, the needs of women and girls from various communities. Um, and I mean, I would say that be, uh, among these marginalized communities, right, um, a lot of us may be a little bit more well-versed with what um, the challenges that are experienced by those from the B40, um, and to a certain extent, I'd say, from the Orang Asli and the East Malaysian Indigenous ones. But what about women and girls with disabilities? That's a huge heterogeneous population there. And not many of us actually have a very clear idea of their challenges. Um, so when the government has yet no plans, how do you even develop? I mean, um, there is not much space, at least right now, um, to, to put out, you know, and ensure that these... And that initiatives are, you know, like are addressing, you know, the needs of this community. So what I would say to this is that um, what the health minister has brought is a good step. But to ensure that the public knows that the government is committed, you know, to addressing this issue of period poverty, um, it should be followed suit as soon as possible with communications about plans that the government is looking at um, to collect data, for instance, um, which stakeholders to engage um, and also corresponding timelines um, to hopefully develop programs to um, address the period um, needs of various communities. So that's what I think it should go on about. What can you tell us about the level of education um, among the Malaysian masses when it comes to this issue? Do Malaysians, especially Malaysian girls, but also guys, um, receive education on period proper, uh, period uh, poverty, menstrual hygiene, and so on and so forth? 
Um, from what I know, lah, there are there are there have been initiatives, you know, being conducted. Um, whether it's by NGOs themselves or NGOs in collaboration with, um, you know, corporations or government ministries or agencies. Sorry. So, for example, um, I think there was one, um, initiative that was actually. It's more like menstrual hygiene and period management education. Right. Um, conducted by Cotex, for instance, uh, in collaboration with LPPKN, which is an agency under the Ministry of Women, and also WAOLA. And uh, basically, it's to educate girls, um, you know, like about the aforementioned topics. Um, you will find probably initiatives like these um, conducted over the last few years. But that's all I know. Um, if I were to relate to my personal experience, though, um, all I remember learning about periods, right, uh, menstruation to be very specific was when I was 14. Um, but the thing is, when I was in school, right, it was in biology, I actually couldn't, like I was studying it in a very abstract manner. Right. It, I, I didn't relate to my body at all. And the, and the most interesting thing was that I actually had my menarche of first period at 11. Um, and, uh, and the thing is, I didn't know what was happening. Like, I was actually, because I felt like my, because I was actually home from going back from ballet class. Um, and then I suddenly felt like my basically like my underwear was wet, and then and then I saw that my leotards were also stained, but I didn't know what was going on. Actually, it was my mom who immediately came to me and asked me to change and blah 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 blah, and uh, and then the use of pads just became a thing. But I never really, you know, learned or understood about menstruation and my bodily functions and etc. So perhaps this may be the experience that would have been shared by many women and girls um, from all walks of life, not just those who are younger now, but also those from my generation or before. Um, but that's just among women and girls. Lah. But what about men and boys, right? Let, let me bring up an example. So um, recently, I actually um, conducted uh, an online um, period poverty talk lab um, with a bunch of university students um, from a private one in Slangor. Um, and I've received questions uh, via Google Form submission and also via Zoom chat um, about like how, and it's from male participants, huh? what can men and boys do to support women and girls when they have periods? So this is just a very small example, but right. I guess it provides us a glimpse into um, you know the lack of awareness that our men and boys have um, towards to what extent menstruation affects women and girls um, and, and things, small things of what they can do. So there is a long way to go lah, to make sure that, you know, like all sectors of society and everyone in it, um, you know, is educated and more or less aware about menstruation and menstrual hygiene. So basically, I think what I'm getting from you is, um, you know, there's a long way to go to, to solve the issue of period poverty. But at the very least, this government is taking the steps in the right direction, or at least the first step uh, in the right direction. Now that that first step has been taken, what are some of the recommendations that Awam has for the government when it comes to addressing the issue of period poverty? What should they do next? I would say the first one that I can think of is uh, menstrual leave because mm -hmm. if you remember, right, Dashran, um, in July this year, the former MP of Glang actually asked the Ministry of Women about their plans to draft and enforce um, a menstrual leave policy 
for companies. Um, and I think he also brought up, you know, to, to, to conduct a study lah, because, you know, just to ensure that there's proper regulation and that it's not abuse and as such. And uh, if I remember correctly, the ultimate answer that was provided by Deputy Minister Women back then said that the government did not have plans um, to implement this menstrual leave policy because according to their data, there is no demand for it and that women employees don't request for menstrual-related leave due to embarrassment and a fear of being seen as unproductive. So in a way, what I can say is that we're actually reacting or we are rather reinforcing um, period stigma or social cultural norms that perpetuate that. So I think it's important that the government actually looks into this um, and really conducts um, proper stakeholder engagements with various um various sectors, NGOs, women's groups, um, companies who have implemented menstrual leave, um, MEF, um, and et cetera, and et cetera. Um, because menstrual leave, yes, the, the, the more well-known con is that it may paint or portray women as um, less able uh, or it reinforces their image as weak. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the con, but the pro is also that. Um, I would say a stronger one at that is that um, it actually shows that the companies care about the well-being Absolutely. And of women. Yeah, and reinforces productivity. Um, and just in case there's an actually an interesting there's actually an interesting furniture company that was based in Sabah. Right. They actually implemented a menstrual leave. Um, this company is actually called Booty and Bursi. It was covered by Focus Malaysia. Like I came across it by chance. Um, I was actually quite impressed because the founder, which is a man, um he actually looked into menstrual... He actually did his own research huh, about menstrual leave policies um, across organizations and across countries. And he, you know, like on a basis of deliberation, he actually decided to adopt it. And um, yeah, he's not implementing... He's not experimenting with it uh, in terms of implementation. But if I'm not mistaken, it's like uh, women employees get a, a, a day la, of menstrual leave per month. So with a summer-based furniture company in the private sector who can implement it and they found the benefits of it, that, that should be a role model um, for, you know, like other companies um, to consider and also indirectly like for key ministries like the Ministry of Women. Like, that's menstrual leave. The second one that I'd like to bring up is actually about sex education. Um, right now, we have peers in our curriculum but I'm not sure if I experienced it. Lah. Um, but it came about in 2006, so it's been around for a while. Um, and if we revise how we teach periods uh, at, um, to girls and boys, um, it can have a spillover effect in many ways because let's not forget, right, like the menarche or first period, it's alongside other signs of puberty. Right. Um, and as we all know, signs of puberty are basically, you know, like basically we relate it to, you know, um, the maturity of women, um, girls, um, especially in the context of um, sexual reproductive health. Um, and if you start destigmatizing periods, you're also at the same time making way um, for uh, more healthier and constructive conversations about other aspects of puberty. So um, pregnancy um, and even menstrual disorders, by the way, um, for example, right, like um, endometriosis, um, uterine, uterine fibroids, basically conditions that um, have symptoms like menstrual cramps or irregular period cycles. So um, I think that it's important that um, the Ministry of Education alongside other key ministries um, relook at how peers is implemented, um, upgrade 
training towards teachers and um, basically equip them with the relevant skills and sensitivity to discuss these topics with their students. Um, and alongside, of course, um, awareness campaigns with parents because I got, I mean, I had my first year when I was 11 before I even entered secondary school. Oh, right. um, and in most cases, parents are the first entry point, right? So to equip parents with skills on how to um, share these um, topics with their children um, would be very important as well. Now, this next question might be a little bit of a silly one, Janelle, but there seems to be some confusion among some politicians. Uh, again, perhaps it's just poorly worded statements and they need better, you know, uh, speech writers and, and all of these things. But there are some statements on, on period poverty, like some confusion on period poverty versus period emergency. So recently, PKR's um, Napsia Kamis um, said, and I quote, Tuala Wanita di tandas wanita di KKM bukanlah untuk kegunaan percuma hari-hari tetapi untuk kami bila berlaku tiba-tiba now end quote this tweet especially given Dr Zaliha's announcement that the free pads um, pilot program will begin in MOH itself has received backlash from many um, uh, netizens, many who wonder if they know the difference, they as in the politicians know the difference between period poverty and a period emergency. So Janelle, perhaps you can, just for the record, clarify the difference. So period poverty, going back to, I'm not going to reiterate the whole definition, mm -hmm. but to summarize, it's, um, I would say period poverty is more of a chronic or a systemic issue la, because it involves um, lack of access to certain um, facilities, infrastructure, mm -hmm. and there are also these socio-cultural barriers that impede um, dignified and effective management of menstruation. So as you can see, it's more systemic in nature. But okay, by the way, period emergency is actually not even a, an official term. Yep, I, I, I tried looking for it. Mm -hmm. I also couldn't find it. I only came across a couple of websites that used it. And the <laughs> context in which they're using it is just, for example... Um, when your period or any of your symptoms like cramps and etc., when they come when you least expect it, um, a connotation to this is that it, it came when it's out of your usual expected regular right. cycle. So in that context, the period emergency would consist of, you know, like kits that women and girls can prepare that would consist of things like tampons, pads, even period underwear, um, heat patches for, because I mentioned symptoms, right? So for crepes, you can have like heat patches and also painkillers, over-the-counter ones um, to manage your pain. So that's period emergency, you know? Right. So just to paint a clearer picture, you know, you, you gave the example earlier, like you went to ballet class and but obviously that time your mom was there with you. If your mom wasn't there um, and, you know, you got your first period and you're like, oh, my God, what do I do? I don't have access to to, to sanitary napkins and so on and so forth. That would essentially be a, a quote unquote period emergency. Right. So to be fair, even when what Napsia Kames pointed out um, you know, although it's not related to period poverty, um, you know, getting period that out of your cycle or suddenly, unexpectedly, when you don't have access to certain materials on you, um, sometimes women, poor or otherwise, get their period unexpectedly. And it would be great, right, if there are accessible and affordable fee or free period pads in various places. So while what she said 
is not tied to period poverty, it is still important if there are accessible, um, you know, if women and girls have access to affordable um, period pets wherever they are, right? Yeah, if I were to if I were to go along your um your, your context, right, mm-hmm. especially for schools, like, right. because you know, in schools like in primary even or secondary schools where girls are still trying to understand about their bodies and their sexuality and all that stuff, um having having pets available, like having those supplies on hand, and, and it's not just pets and tampons, like it's also like even um, over-the-counter pain medications, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's fully available everywhere or whether it's upon request, at least it shows that the environment is period-friendly um, and, and it will go a long way in the long run to normalize this, this culture where period is normal and it can be discussed um, and you can seek support, not just with fellow women and girls, uh, also with boys and men. That's one. But if I were to steer clear off that a little bit and if I were to go a little bit further, um, because right, what you're referring to, Darshan, is a context where um, menstrual cycles are regular, you know. Right. I haven't even gone to those who who already, like in the beginning maybe or halfway through, um, experience irregular menstrual right. menstruation. Mm-hmm. For example, those who for those beat for primary reasons, primary reasons meaning that you can't identify the cause, or secondary reasons, and in which case I'll bring up a, just switch a couple of names lah. One is like polycystic ovarian syndrome. This is not something I don't think this is something that many people maybe are aware, but it's actually a very chronic hormonal um disorder lah. Um, and it leads one of the consequences of PCOS is actually irregular menstruation. And there's also uterine fibroids, as what I've mentioned. Basically, it's growth in your uterus. Endometriosis. Um, this one is also, it's a condition that is highly prevalent among women. Um, uh, in terms of access to um, you know, like responsive services and etc., um, including awareness, we're not fully there yet, but it's highly prevalent. So I think that when you make period pads available everywhere, you're also indirectly starting to open up space. Um, to normalize, but of course you need a few more initiatives lah. To normalize, um, you know, like these other conditions that are not as talked about for the longest time. So yes, making our spaces period friendly um can go a long way, and also it's a very crucial indicator. Aside from addressing women's needs, it also makes it a normal thing for men and boys. Um, not just in understanding about menstruation, but also openly supporting women and girls lah when they need support lah. Absolutely. Um, so I think it's important to note, um, you know, if you are listening to this, that yesterday the health minister once again clarified her plan because of the mixed reactions on um, Twitter, on, on social media and whatnot. So she said that the plan to start the initiative at the ministry's headquarters in Putrajaya is only meant to see how the initiative can be put into operation and gun. And she also wants to garner immediate feedback. So I think that it, it is Overall, it's still a very good initiative. Um, Maybe some poorly worded statements here and there, but it's a good initiative. Um, As Janelle has mentioned as well, definitely the step in the right direction. All right, Janelle, before we wrap this conversation up, would you have a final message for us? Yes. (laughs) Everyone can play a part in creating a period-friendly space. I can provide a few tips. Um, And it relates to a lot of us. Uh, Of course, learning more about menstruation is one thing. I think one thing that a lot of people should remember is um, say no to period teasing. We see it commonly in schools, right? Um, not doing this can go a long way. 
in um, empowering women and girls about their own bodies, um, that they don't feel shameful about it, that they don't feel um, dread, that they even have something like this um, when it's so normal. Um, but yes, say no to period teasing. Thirdly, name period as it is. Don't use... You know, we, we all know these names. Uh, like for, for example, in Mandarin, it's like big auntie, um, I don't know, code rape. Um, it does not help. It's just that it, it goes on the same principle as, you know, like how we teach children about bad touch, good touch. We have to name body parts as they are. Similarly here, name period as it is. Ah, something for men and boys to think about too. There's one more. Uh, know her pet sizes. It's actually, it's actually not a bad thing at all. In fact, it's a very good thing to, for example, accompany, you know, like your sisters, mothers, um, partners, etc., to walk down the period product aisle, see what the products are, see what sizes they have, because next time when they need something and not able to get out, you can actually help them buy right. the period products for them. It's I, I, it's a very simple thing, but when you can do something, when a lot of men and boys can do something, it really goes a long way in you know, normalizing this period-friendly culture. Um, yeah, but these are just some of the examples. But basically, do your part in um, creating a period-friendly culture. We should break the stigma. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Janelle. Thank you very much, Dashun. That was Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at the All Women's Action Society, AWAM. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashun Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.